So Jay, one of the things I do with my kids is tell them you need a guy or a gal. You got to have a good mechanic. You got to have a good doctor. Mm -hmm. You got to have like a loan person, like a banker. You just need people that that yeah. uh, have expertise outside of what you have expertise Absolutely. in. Absolutely. Uh, and for us, <laughs> it's Chris Castle. Nobody 100%. better. Nobody better to break down the legal stuff than our friend Chris Castle. Yeah. And for those that don't know, Chris Castle, he's an attorney, but he's much more than that. He's an advocate for artists and songwriters. Um, he runs a website, Music Technology Policy, which is a uh, you know, often featured in your morning coffee. And Mike and I talk about it pretty regularly. He's a highly sought after speaker at conferences. You can see some of them online. He's, uh, he's one of my favorite music industry experts. And I learn something every time I talk to Chris Castle and we're super fortunate to have this bonus episode with Mr. Castle. Yes. And with further, without further ado, I should say, let's listen in. Stand by for transmission. This is London calling. Wake up! The revolution is at hand! Your morning coffee is on the air. Your morning coffee, the weekly music news for the new music business. It's the highly curated, agitated, advocated, moderated, and liberated digital music information that you need to know. We are your digital music authority. Now, from our studios in Hollywood, California, here's your hosts, Jay Gilbert and Mike Etchart. Chris, always a pleasure. Good to see you. Got your coffee? You ready to go? Thanks, Jay. Good to see you. All right. Let's let's dive Happy in. There's, there's so many things that you and I could talk about, and I always learn something when I talk to you. Um, one of the things we were texting about, which I'd love to touch on, is kind of this narrative that, you know, labels are bad. You know, um, going indie is, is mm. the best thing for you. And I've noticed that right. over the last few years that the roles and responsibilities of labels has evolved. The roles and responsibilities of distributors has really changed. Um, talk about that narrative with labels and, you know, what a label can bring you that maybe you're not thinking about when you're putting out your own music. When you put out any music, whether you do it yourself or somebody else does it, it's a lot of work. If you want to do it right, it's just a lot of work, right? Um, and you need to be thinking all the time. This is a logist- logistician's uh, playpen, right? Uh, because and whether you're manufacturing anything or not, right? Um, but don't feel bad about it. I mean, there, there's lots of people who should know better who don't, okay? So um, 
one of the things that you you realize when you start trying to do all this stuff yourself is um, there just you know there just aren't enough hours in the day um, to really do it with the band. Uh, you can't really count on a distributor who's just like a digital distributor uh, to do anything for you. I mean, most of the time you'll, you'll be lucky if all if if they can actually hook you up to the pipe, right? In other words, if they can actually get your stuff onto the platforms somewhere around the time that you they told you they would. Right. So that's not a lot of help. And um, one of my problems with these sort of pay up front services, we won't mention any names, but their initials are TuneCore um, and, and people like that, is that when you pay a flat fee up front and you don't have a distributor that only makes if you make that creates what you call moral hazard, right? Because, um, you know, if, if the artist has paid up front for the distribution costs or the dis- or what that means is they've taken on the distribution risk. Okay. So distribution is a risk. <laughs> okay. This is something that seems to get lost out there, you know, it's like when the distributor comes in, it's not a sure bet, okay? It never has been a sure bet. When you, as the artist, pay up front, first of all, you're never going to be able to pay for what you really need. And if you think that you're going to, even if they tell you you're going to get some things, you're not really getting what you need. So you're going to have to also pay for that, right? If you go to a distributor, and they say, you know, I don't think I can move enough units to make it worth my while or more worth your while, you know, go with God and, you know, we'll see you around campus, right? <laughs> that should tell you something, yeah, right? That should tell you something. They're not willing. What does it tell you? It tells you they are not willing to accept the distribution risk for your record, right? Doesn't mean the risk goes away. It just means that they're not willing to, to front it. Yeah. Right. Or alternatively, take a bet on the back end, which is really what a distribution company does. And they may charge you, you know, various things. And, you know, a lot of these places are all about the fees right. and, you know, the you know, restocking and, you know, reshrinking and breakage, you know, and all, all those things um, and the digital equivalents of those things. So, you know. Yeah. But. So what you have to do when you're setting out to release a record is you have to decide, you know, what's best for you. And if you're willing to uh, deal with all this yourself and maybe somebody in the band is, um, you know, a graphic designer and maybe somebody in the band is, um, you know, a photographer. Right. And and, um, maybe somebody in the band knows a couple people at record stores or whatever, if you're going to sell physical. Um, But, you know, do you really want to have you know, pallets of vinyl in the living room. Yeah. Do you really want to be, you know, paying all those postage charges yourself? Do you want to eat the credit card charges yourself? Do you want to be stuffing envelopes yourself? Because at a certain point, it's like, well, wait a minute. I thought I was a musician, (laughs) right? Right. You know, I thought I was a recording artist and now I'm a drop shipper. Yeah. Right. Not really what you sign up for. So, You know, there's a specialization in economics, right, where people do the things they're good at 
And when artists go in to do a lot of these things, sometimes they don't have a choice, but they're really not doing the thing that they should be focusing on. Yeah. And through all the way down the line, if you have a label, you have a record company. It really kind of depends on the philosophy of the record company, right? Um, there was a great AR man named David Anderley, who has passed away now, but um was a good friend of mine and um was a head of AR at AM on a number of different occasions over the years. And David said to me one time when we, I was in the middle of an argument with the finance department about why they should pay, um, you know, off, off, off the, not, not off the books, but uh, off the uh, accounting cycle uh, for an artist who had, had had a big recruitment amount, but then sold a huge amount of records and it just happened to fall on the wrong day, right? You know, in terms of getting them the royalty check they were expecting. I mean, it's like sending somebody a check for $40,000 when they're expecting $2 million, right? Yeah. That's not going to go over well. So I was arguing with the finance department and Andrew Lee said to me, and they said, well, we make money off the float. And David said, no, we don't. <laughs> we make money by having happy artists, you know, compelling artists who we help to find an audience. And that may take a month, six months, a year, five years. Yeah. But we have, that's what we do. We help them find an audience. And when they find it, we get them paid. Right. Yeah. And we keep them happy. So this is what we do. Right. Yeah. So stop with this float business. (laughs) It's not about you. Okay. It is not about you. Yeah. It's not about me either. It's about them. Yeah. Right. So, you know, when you look at your record company, you say, are they in for the long haul with me or are they not? And that doesn't mean that they have to write huge checks up front. It just means they have to write big enough checks yeah. to keep to to advance you from A to B to C to D. Yeah. Because at the end of the day, what a record company's job is, is to make you famous mm-hmm. so that you can go make money in other ways. Right. Right. And sometimes, you know, they think they should participate in that and you'll have that argument, but other times, you know, if you're successful, you can carve that back or push that off or, you know, claw that back, you know, at some point. Yeah. You make a really good point because I think I mentioned to you, I, I spoke with Papa Roach this last week and, uh, uh, Jacoby was telling me that, They've taken on a lot of the roles and responsibilities of a label and they've gone indie and you're absolutely right. It's not for everyone. It works for them, but that's one of the reasons why I'm a consultant and I work with people to help kind of bridge that gap. And I think a lot of them are shocked at how expensive a publicist is, for example, or creating a video or banner sets or, you know, which leads us, you know, beautifully into kind of the next point because you know, labels aren't bad. I've worked with labels, they're evangelists. And when they get behind something and make it a priority, they can move mountains. But I, I was talking with you a little bit about kind of this new trend of this short term, short form video, TikTok mentality, um, where some labels, not all, but some labels are looking for that next big kind of viral moment through TikTok, hoping that they'll boost their market Mm -hmm. share a little bit. Talk a little bit about your your attitude towards kind of that 
that short term, um, I guess, versus artist development mentality. Right. Well, if you if you um, first of all, full disclosure, I am really not a fan of TikTok at all. Right. OK. Um, which, you know, it, it troubles me that it's so successful. Right. They certainly didn't ask me. But um, what, what that does is it perpetuates the kind of short term singles deal you know, uh, glomming or what I call the fence pole sitter, you know, kind of mentality. Right. It's like, you'll, you'll be famous maybe for a little bit. Um, but you will not, but that's not a career. Being famous is not a career. Bob Dylan is a career, right? Bruce Springsteen is a career. Motley Crue is a career, right? Right. These are guys who, um, you know, have gradually over the years built a sustainable presence in very different genres and, and with very different approaches, but they have slowly built that fan base and they have slowly built that image, right. And, and marketing uh, promotion type awareness at, at in, in the business and with the fans directly, right. Just, I mean, your first fans are in the business, Let's let's not forget that. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's like your first fans may be your record company. You know, your next fans may be hopefully at radio. You know, your next fans may be the booking agents. Right? You have to have all those fans before you ever get to the actual fans. Right now, you can do stuff online, and you can you know you can have these viral moments and and, and so on. But that is not necessarily a career. You know, when you're when you when when you're eighteen to twenty four. That may seem like a big deal, right? Uh, but when you are 35 to 55, you know, th that's not what's going to be happening, right? Mm -hmm. So what will be happening? Well, you know, I mean, you look at somebody like David Lowry, right? Or Skunk Baxter or, or some of these other people, you know, the Lowry is out there doing, I bet Lowry does 150, 200 nights a year with both Camper Van Beethoven and Cracker. Right. Two shows a night. He sings the entire night. <laughs> How he does it, I don't know. But but he does it. And, and he's been doing it all this time. Right. Mm -hmm. So he's got a fan base. He can do you know, he can he sells enough records to keep the band together to make it worth his while to go on the road, which, you know, if, if you want to do some tour accounting, that's the next little job, you know, that, yeah. that, that awaits you, you know, out there. If you decide to do all this stuff on your own, it's, it's very hard, mm -hmm. right. To do all this. So, you know, if you're thinking about this now, and I really think you need to, there's sort of an arc, right. I have this article called that I wrote in 1999 called the coming changes in record company artist relations. Um, why it's actually why free agency matters, the coming changes in record company artist relations. So basically what happens is most of the time, not all the time, but most of the time artists sign with a label in the beginning of their career. If they're lucky that peaks around LP three, right? Maybe LP four, if they're really lucky LP five, right? They now have a fan base, which has been established by their label. Right. The label may decide for whatever reason 
to part company, right? We renegotiated a lot of deals at AM, right? Yeah. And, and but sometimes we would the, the reality would be the artist was just asking for more money than we thought we could make up because there is a certain financial reality that, that right. comes to pass, right? So, you know, but at that point, whatever that point is, when you when you leave that label, you become a free agent, right? Now you find out what you're really worth, <laughs> right? And and when and this is my point about the net versus you know the 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 gross basically you know because like like Louis C.K. for example this is a good example Louis C.K. ended up selling all these records or, or all these videos online of his performance and Louis made the same amount of money net that he would have if he sold it at a much higher price point on Apple, <laughs> let's say, right. right? Because he wasn't going to keep all the money. When you're keeping, maybe not all the money, but most of the money, you you have a tolerance for bringing that price point down, right? Sure. Which is better for the fan, and you're going to sell more units. Then you're going to make the same amount of money, let's say, you know, close to it, as you would if you had a distributor and you had more mouths to feed, right? Yeah. So, yeah. Um, once you get that in your mind, it's like getting dropped may actually end up being like one of the best things that ever happened to you as opposed to a disaster, right? right? Like, oh my God, I have no identity. I'm not signed to a record company anymore. No, that's not true. Somebody spent an awful lot of money and an yes. awful lot of time making sure you had an identity. That's right. <laughs> you know? Yeah. They right? took you to so radio or they hired a publicist or they helped you create, yeah. you know, albums and videos. And really, to your point, they helped you in no small way to build that base that now you can take with you when you leave the building. If you've been smart about it while you've been in that situation. Yeah, because <laughs> what you don't want to have is you don't want to sit there saying, hmm. Where's my email list? Oh, it's in the marketing department of the label that just dropped right, me. Right. No. <laughs> yeah. And some labels actually control Bad the social idea. media for for some of the That's artists, right. you know. So there's there was this great quote that I sent you from Keith Urban from the leadership music event I went to a few weeks ago. And he said, write a hit song and you'll have a moment. Build an audience and you'll have a career. And I think that really speaks to what you're saying. Yeah. That's yeah. right. So your audience, <laughs> right? So I was reading make of it some, what you will. Oh, go ahead. No, I'm just saying it's oh, okay. your audience. So make of it what you will, right? right? But it's your audience. Yeah. And that means you have to be the steward of that audience. Yes, absolutely. So I, I was talking to you about something um, that I read. And when I first read it, I thought it was just so far fetched. Um, and then after talking to you, it's maybe not that uh, far-fetched. So I'm, I'm going to try and walk through the scenario and you, you correct me where I have it wrong. When, when music is placed on the digital service pr providers like Spotify, Apple music, Pandora, Deezer, it's, it's fed to them with a unique identifier per song called an ISRC code. And there's also a unique right. identifier on the publishing side called the ISWC code, but that's not necessarily ready yet or delivered when that music's delivered to the digital service provider. So how they reconcile that is on the back end um, with the PROs when they get the reporting from the DSPs. A, is that correct? And then B, I'm hearing that 
maybe a, up to a third of that maybe isn't reconciled and that revenue drops into the black box. Am I close? Yeah, sort of. Um, so, so basically the, the, remember there's two copyrights in every recording, right? The sound recording and the musical composition owned by different people, maybe in different territories, right? Usually the sound recording is owned by one person worldwide, but the publishing could be the, or what we call the publishing, the song, Copyright is owned by or administered by maybe multiple people. Plus, there's usually only one um, owner, you know, one creator, basically, of the sound recording, which is the band, right? But on the song, you could have any one of a number. And if it's a pop song, you could have some ungodly number yeah, of songwriters. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Like 10, right? Mm -hmm. uh, through the magic of Zoom or Skype or whatever, right? <laughs> so, um, and then there's usually somebody who thinks they were a writer, but actually weren't, you know? Uh, and then that's a whole other discussion. So what ends up happening with the digital services is that um, who delivers to the music music services, right? The yeah. record companies. Yeah, the rights holders. They own the sound recording copyright. What did they care about? The sound recording copyright. Right. They may or may not, through their music publishing affiliate, uh, have an interest in one or more of the songs uh, through one or more of the writers. Right. But that starts to get pretty attenuated. Uh, there's a train leaving the station with the release of the sound recording, as we've been talking about. Right. Uh, and, and they're not going to wait around, <laughs> you know, uh, for the song to, to get the metadata sorted out or even the the, the writers to yeah. agree right and one of the reasons that this happens is because um there is a real reluctance at the label to put a legal hold on a release because you don't have all the publishing information now when i was at AM, we didn't have we we had uh mostly uh song uh, or most of the songs on our releases were written by the artists or pretty close to it um, because it, we were kind of a pop rock label um, at that time, yeah. And um, what that means is that when the when they delivered the record, you usually had one producer, right, mm -hmm. who was delivering ten to twelve, maybe fourteen tracks uh, that were written by one to four people, right. Still, you know, en enough to where there's a headache, but nothing like it is today. However, what I did at that time was I, I discovered that our uh, royalty department was running around spending a lot of time chasing down splits, right? And so we would end up occasionally putting out a record, not very often, but occasionally we'd put out a record where we didn't have quite all, all the songs cleared. And that creates problems downstream and it creates a lot of accounting headaches, right? Um, even though, you know, it's much easier to handle at a, when you're talking about a physical record that's released by the record company, because that all comes in on one tape, basically. And, mm -hmm. you know, it's just a lot easier to account. So what I did was I said to the producers, hey, you know that part in your contract that says you have to deliver us all the splits? That part you ignore all the time? Well, we're not going to ignore that anymore. It's for real now. Right. So I'm not paying you your back end until I get all the splits. All, and that what that means is 
you have to go sit in a room with these people and get them to agree what the splits are. Right. Right. And good luck with that. I will not help you. So don't bother asking. And um, then you tell me what the publishers are and, and then we'll send all that down to the royalty department. So they start in the right place. Right. And we don't have to have this, uh, what they call um, copyright control, you know, which is what they call um, songs for which they don't have any um, publishing information. Right. So that was in, in the days when when ISWCs really first got started. So we weren't really thinking ISWC so much in those days. But fast forward, you know, to um, today where you've got. Most of what your releases are uh, have to do with, uh, you know, digital uh, services. And once that track goes out on the digital service without the ISWC, money starts accruing right away and in very tiny amounts. So there's a lot of transaction costs involved with sorting this out. I mean, we're going to hit probably well over a trillion streams industry-wide this year, right? So think about that. Um, So what ends up happening is the label is not going to wait to get the ISWC. Sometimes, you know, there's songwriters that are still arguing about splits. So what has happened now is um, there's been, there's a change coming or may actually be, implemented now uh, by the body that that established the, the standard setting body that establishes ISWCs, uh, which um, allows an ISWC to exist where it can be added to. So at least when it goes out, if they've got one writer, they can they can establish an ISWC for that track as it goes out. Maybe adjust so it as later. sales yeah, it may still, well, yeah. the money will not go into the black box, right? Mm-hmm. The money will be attributed. I mean, it will, it's the difference between being um, unmatched because you don't know who to pay right? and unmatched because you don't have all the writers, but you at least know who somebody is, right? Yeah. And so when those other writers reach an agreement, then they can go, you know, add themselves to that ISWC. And then there's another thing called the IPI, which is more like a social security number to where there's the ISWC provides a bridge to the actual payee, ultimate payee, right. Ah. Uh, Which is connected to the IPI. So, you know, this is what's happening now, but that doesn't change the fact that it wasn't happening (laughs) for quite some time. And these records were coming out and going on these digital services and they just didn't have the ISWC. And if, you know, a third, I think, is probably generous. Wow. You know, I, I think Seriously. it's probably more like a third were identified. Right? Wow. Because what you register with your PRO, who, by the way, is not involved with collecting mechanical royalties, right? So there's there's not much connection. There's some, but there's not a whole lot of connection between the PROs and the, um, and the mechanical royalty. They're, because they will establish an IPI and they will establish an ISWC, right? Ultimately, mm-hmm. when you register with them, Makes but sense. there has to be some way to connect that back to the mechanical side because those are different silos, right? right. Uh, that's MLC versus ASCAP, BMI, CSAC, GMR, right? Yeah. yeah. 
So it's different, different payment structure, different payees, maybe, you know, um, probably will be different payees. Um, So and for it's, those that don't um, know, Chris, the, the MLC is the Mechanical Licensing Collective, part of the Music Modernization right. Act. Um, but but yeah, go ahead. Yeah. So anyway, it's getting better, uh, but it's a slow process. Yeah. Boy, that is. Because, because these tracks are allowed to go out without the ISWC in place. And then you're really looking at track name, artist name. And, you know, Moon in June could be recorded by... 50 different artists. Right. So. Yeah. And we're finding that metadata across the board just isn't super accurate in the music industry. I know that's not a shock to you, but we look into sound exchange and find errors or there are duplicate or common artist names and we'll find some, you know, some issues there. So we're constantly cleaning up that data. I think it's kind of my pet peeve in the music industry is if I want to go on and do a search for Chris Lord algae or something, or, you know, who or Christian McBride, what records did he play on? We have all this data, but we can't really use it to uh, help us, you know, run queries or find music on DSPs. Yeah, producer credits are like a whole other subject. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. but because that's and musician, you know, credits are, and you know, and all these guys on on these on the um, you know non interactive side are entitled to something, right? Yeah, uh, but you don't have to collect it. I mean, basically, what happens is it all gets paid over to the unions, and then the unions um, try to find them. Right. And if they're not union members, then, you know, they're they're kind of jump ball whether they even know they're entitled to it. Yeah. And it may not be nefarious. Right. I mean, some people die or move or. Right. Um, Well, listen, we could talk all day. and I want to make sure what's that. There's that, too. There's that too, right? Yeah, you know, um, death you know has a finality to it. Yes, exactly. Um, I want to make sure we get to this last topic because you and I could talk all day, and we'll just have to do this again because there's so much I want to talk to you about. But sure, I, you've you have an interesting take on subscription streaming rates, and and I'd love for you to talk about that because I think the common um, thought or misconception is that if we just raise the subscription fee that people pay that magically artists will be paid more songwriters will be paid more and you know, there'll be unicorns and rainbows and everything will be great. Tell us a little bit about how that works with streaming subscription rates. Would raising the rate solve all of our problems? Is it that simple? No, (laughs) no. Um, So, um, So, you know, think about the core calculation in the market, so-called market-centric model, right? So basically you have, well, let's just talk about market-centric right now. So what happens is in the market-centric model, there's some version of this story. You have each month, right? You have revenue, Mm -hmm. which is defined revenue. It's not all revenue, Right. Uh, but it's the defined revenue multiplied by a fraction, which is your streams divided by all streams. Now, remember, we just said we'll probably hit a trillion streams this month or this year, right? Amazing. 
So that denominator is a big number, right? If it's a big service, it's going to vary because this is service by service, month by month, right? Just in case there wasn't enough electricity being spent on, on calculations, right? I have another theory, which is that it costs more to render the statement on a per stream basis than the royalty that's payable. But put that to one side. So uh, you multiply this this number by a fraction, right? So that denominator, remember, that denominator is is a function of the number of recordings that are available on the service. Now, we know that not all recordings on any service are listened to all the time, or maybe even at all, right? right? But if you have this, this constant flow of recordings coming in, whatever the number is, right? There's a rate of increase in the streams that are thrown off by the increase in the number of available recordings, because behind all those recordings, you have artists that are busting, butt, you know, to, to get people to listen to them. Right. Mm -hmm. You also have catalog, right. Uh, And you're not just, it's not just any catalog. It's all the catalog. (laughs) And, and when you stop and think about the fact that you were, when you release a record, Every time you release a record on a streaming platform, you are competing with every record that's ever been released ever before in the history of recorded music, more or less. Wow. Right? Yeah. Uh, you know, they, they brag about, well, we've got 50 million tracks. Yeah, you know, I don't really want to compete with 50 million tracks. Thank you very much. You know, I would rather, you know, that you not have some of those, particularly if they're not being listened to that much. But um, when you have a rate of increase in the streams if you if if the numerator in other words if your tracks don't increase at a rate that's at least equal to the increase in the denominator then what happens your share goes down wow. right yeah if you're a band that doesn't exist anymore. Your the number of recordings that are available for you are, is a finite number, and it's never going to change, right? I mean, someone might do a remix or a remat, whatever. But but basically, you're you're you know, if you're Crosby, Zills, and Nash, let's say, or Fleetwood Mac, you know, or Marvin Gaye. There's, you know, particularly if you're dead, right, there there won't be any new recordings. Right. Right. So what that means is that number is going to decline over time. If you look at it in any one month, you know, you might say, well, you know, it's I got a I got this share, you know, and that's what I got. Well, that's not really the reality. You have to look at it over time. Because that denominator is changing, right? You can't you can't look at a snapshot of this and say that's how it is. That's not how it is. That's how it is that month on that service, right? Now, if you look at the other side, the money side of the equation, right? Mm-hmm. If that rate doesn't increase at a rate that's greater than, let's say, the increase in the rate of increase in that denominator over time then it doesn't really matter if it increases, if it doesn't increase enough, right? And these guys are out there busting hump, you know, to get as many recordings on this, 
on these services as they can in some sense of democracy. You know, I mean, you hear this all time. Well, you know, Spotify democratized the music mm-hmm. business. No, it didn't. What it did was it it <laughs> it caused everybody's royalty rate to be on what I call the Malthusian algebra, you know, which is the mouths get more numerous and the money, the resources doesn't really change and goes down. So really the market centric model is designed for any one artist to on a, certainly on a per stream basis to have their royalty decline over time, which is why (laughs) People are freaking out now because there's been just enough time. Actually, about maybe two years ago, there was just enough time for it to start hurting. And then when COVID hit and live dried up, then it really didn't matter because people started looking at those Spotify royalty statements a little close. They sure did. And they said, wait a minute, this isn't working for me. How am I? Why are there all these zeros? Right. right? I mean, how I can't live like nobody lives like that. Right. And so when they started figuring that out, then all of a sudden you had fixed streaming, you know, broken record. Right. Yeah. Exactly. ZMS query, mm-hmm. you know, all of that. Right. Yeah. And people are. And now Lucian Grange is coming out and saying, you know, we need to do something about this. And the something that they want to do something with is probably going to be something, some version of artist-centric. Because think about this, and here's here's the the, the closing point on this, right? Sure. Is if you are a fan, whatever you pay, right, as your subscription fee, and you listen to 20 artists in a month, you think my money went to those 20 artists, right? right? Mm-hmm. Well, that's not true. Mm-mm. Some of it went to those artists. A very, very small amount went to those artists, depending on who those artists are. I mean, if they're very popular, you know, uh, it might be more than a little bit, but it's never going to be, you know, if they're not huge, it's never going to be anything significant. You, you might not even get to, you know, the tens, Right. Um, on 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 the monthly uh, revenue for those artists, right? So what happens is all of that money gets put into a pot. That's the left side of the equation that we just talked about. Mm-hmm. That's the revenue side. It all gets put into a pot, and then it gets divided up based on activity, right? And so what that should tell you is that everybody gets basically the same amount, no matter who you are, on a per stream basis that month. Right. And so if you have if you have this equality, right, of of compensation, all you have to do is own an ever bigger catalog. Right. More market because share. it doesn't you know, not that hits don't matter. Hits do matter, but they don't matter as much as they used to, mm-hmm. right? Because of all this 50, 60 million tracks that are on these services that they they brag about, right? Which I don't think, I wouldn't be bragging about that if I were them. But this is this is what happens. So with artist-centric, which is the counterbalance to, to, to or the reaction um, to this model, you, you say to your fan, if you listen to me and, you know, your other favorite artists during that month, we will share all of your subscription payment for that month right mm-hmm. um now 
Will that end up being, you know, a significant difference? We don't know. We don't know until we try it. What are the problems with that? Well, one of the problems is if you've got both models, in other words, you've got decades now of, of, of the market-centric model, mm-hmm. and then you bring in this new model, what happens, right? Because I'm telling you, trying to figure out an accounting system that can handle both at the same time, particularly both at the same time with the same artist, That's a lot. you know, yeah. uh, is very complicated. And it's not... I haven't, I've never, once I started thinking through it, I thought, that ah, we're not, we're not doing that. We'll never get anyone to agree to that, which would also require all these services to go renegotiate all their deals, which they're not going to do. Okay. But if you have uh, what I call the ethical pool, right, model, which is one that I, it's kind of my version of artist centric, um, you can strap on the ethical pool model and run the two at the same time. And the reason why that would be important is because you don't have all those transaction costs of the changeover, and you allow the artists and maybe even the fans to opt in, which is sort of what the SoundCloud fan-powered royalties is about. Mm -hmm. So you you allow the fans and and the artists to opt in to the ethical pool model, and there will have to be some housekeeping done so that you don't have double counting and so on, but that's that's elementary yeah. stuff. Yeah. But but this is, I think, the way you get around this. And if it's popular, you know, over time, people may want to just change over to to one or the other, right? Yeah. But what you can't do is you can't go on the way it is. Yeah. The other thing that I I wrote a paper about for Wipo with uh, Claudio Fajou, who's a, a Spanish um, economist um, professor at um, uh, one of the universities in Madrid um, was uh, the idea of a streaming, what I, what we called streaming remuneration, not the same as equitable remuneration. We don't have to get into all that, but streaming remuneration is really an additional royalty that would be paid by the streaming services only to only the uh, non-featured musicians, you know, the studio musicians and mm, vocalists and the featured artists, right? That would be paid to their collective management organization like uh, Sound Exchange or, or um, you know, PPL or whoever yeah. it might be uh, in, in their country. And that would be additional compensation to these artists and musicians uh, because non-featured musicians, you know, get nothing from streaming, essentially. Yeah. Uh, which is not sustainable. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it allows them to be compensated for some of what I think is the additional value that they bring that's not measured by the revenue share, right? But it is measured by the market cap <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, of these publicly traded stocks, you know, like Spotify, mm-hmm. uh, who made bank, you know, during COVID and, you know, are still making bank. Yeah. And somehow with all, all the poor mouthing that goes on every time the, the you know, license deals have to be renegotiated. Well, we seem to forget about the 300 million for, you know, the, the naming deal with Barcelona Football Club. And we forget about the two billion dollar stock buybacks. And we forget about Daniel X bonus of million, you know, I think a million dollars, even though he didn't hit his targets. You know, we forget about all that money, the you know, yeah. 35 floors of World Center, you know, and, 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 you know, so 
I don't, I, I could go on. Yeah, <laughs> right? no, you're right. They'd that certainly, money comes from some point. Yeah, they don't get the uh, headlines like those uh, small rates uh, do. Um, Chris, let's call this uh, part one because we could talk <laughs> for days on this stuff. But I really appreciate you coming on and having this uh, sure. special episode with us. I can't wait to share it with our, uh, our listeners. But uh, let's do this again soon. You've been listening to Your Morning Coffee, the weekly music news program for the new music business. Join Jay Gilbert and Mike Etchard next time for the digital music news you need to know.